it over to our moderator. Hi, good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. Our panelists this morning are Natasha George, a partner in the Employee Benefits and Executive Compensation Group at Goodwin, and Patricia Moran of Council in the Employment, Labor, and Benefits Group at Mintz. Um, and I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to Natasha. Thank you. Thanks, Crescent. Um, good morning, everyone. So, you know, we're here today because um, as many of you are experiencing, we're getting lots and lots of questions from clients about um, what they should be doing on various benefit plan related issues in response to this really kind of unprecedented time that we're in. And so um, I'm going to talk primarily about um, guidance as it relates to uh, retirement plans, focusing primarily on defined contribution retirement plans. Uh, I will just make a couple of notes briefly along the way as it relates to defined benefit pension plans, um, but those generally have some more uh, complicated um, issues that go along with them. And so I won't be focusing on those quite as much because they're really, we could, we could have a whole other session just on those. Um, and then in addition to talking about uh, kind of newer guidance, I'm also going to talk about um, the ways in which some existing rules also are implicated by these current circumstances. Um, so Daniel, if we could move to slide one. So uh, the first thing I want to talk about is the CARES Act. Um, this was some recent legislation that was enacted that made some significant and important changes that plan sponsors are grappling with. So, you know, in times of economic uncertainty, employees will often look to their retirement plan savings as a source of emergency funds. For many uh, individuals, it's their principal uh, savings vehicle. And so historically, there have been two standard means of accessing retirement plan savings while an employee is still employed through what I'll sort of refer to as regular hardship distributions and also regular participant plan loans. Those are both discretionary features. Um, an employer uh, or plan sponsor may not have chosen to include either of those in their existing uh, plan design. And so one thing that they may want to do is just, if they're not already aware of whether they have it or not, uh, take a look and see whether they already have hardship distributions and plan loans available. And if not, an employer may want to explore the possibility of amending its plan to permit one or both of those features. Um, for those of you who may not be as, as deep in the weeds on some of these requirements as, as us, uh, uh, generally a hardship distribution is a, an in-service distribution, that is a distribution that can be taken while someone is still employed and before they reach age 59 and a half um, upon a showing of financial hardship. They're typically subject to a 10% early withdrawal penalty, um, although we'll talk about that more in a second. Um, plan loans are um, also maybe made available. They have to be repaid on a fixed schedule. And there are some uh, requirements that are generally applicable both in terms of the dollar amount that someone can take as a plan loan and also the percentage of their vested plan account that they can access. So importantly, the CARES Act revised some of these rules as they relate to this pandemic that we are experiencing. 
and it implements a number of provisions that employers can make available in their retirement plans. For those of you who have, who have been doing this for a while, you may note that some of these requirements are similar to some of the relief that was provided during the 2008-2009 financial crisis and also for, um, for other uh, financial disasters um, in the past, you know, Katrina and um, similar. So there are a couple of provisions that have been added that relate to distributions and loans. So first, uh, there's a new COVID-19 related special distribution opportunity. Um, this became available effective immediately upon enactment of the legislation. So um, effective March 27th, these provisions can be incorporated into existing plans. So for the distributions, an employer can permit qualifying individuals to take a distribution of up to $100,000, but not more than their account balance from plan accounts through December 30th, 2020. Um, this special distribution opportunity is exempt from that 10% early distribution penalty that I mentioned earlier that would otherwise normally apply to a hardship distribution prior to age 59. And, a half. and it's not subject to a mandatory 20% uh, withholding. So that makes it unique. And so this really, even though I think people are thinking of it similarly to a general hardship distribution, it really does have some distinct features. Um, but part of the, the distinctness of this distribution opportunity is that it's only available to qualifying individuals who are defined as participants who either have been diagnosed with COVID-19 using a test approved by the CDC or have a spouse or dependent that has received that same diagnosis. Or, and this is the big catch-all um, that a lot of plan sponsors are paying attention to, is um, participants who have experienced some sort of adverse financial consequence from either being quarantined, furloughed, furloughed laid off, um, having their work hours reduced, being unable to work due to lack of childcare, as many people are experiencing, um, or you know, being affected by a closing or reduction in hours of a business that they own or operate. And so that is clearly, I think, the big bucket that a lot of um, employees and plan participants will fall into because of the wide ranging nature of this experience. And so if a participant self-certifies, so if a plan sponsor chooses to offer this distribution opportunity and a plan participant self-certifies that this distribution meets that requirement, then they can take this special distribution. Unlike a regular hardship distribution, there's no requirement to show documentation of losses or expenses that they've incurred. So that um, documentation requirement that's normally present with a regular hardship distribution is not present here. Um, there's also an opportunity for plan participants who take one of these special distributions to re-contribute the amounts back to the retirement plan within a three-year period. Um, or if they retain the distribution, they're eligible to have the taxes amortized over a three-year period. So they don't have to take the tax hit all in one year from this distribution. Um, I think that we will undoubtedly receive more you know, guidance about how some of these mechanics are working um, as we continue to make our way through this unusual experience. Um, so that's the, the special new distribution. Um, we also have some changes to the plan loan rules. So again, for qualifying individuals, that same definition, the CARES Act 
has temporarily increased the plan participant loan limit from $50,000 and 50% of someone's vested benefits to $100,000 and 100% of vested benefits for loans that are made between March 27th when the, the act was adopted and September 22nd of 2020. Um, so there's this in increased loan opportunity. One kind of practice point is that many plans will have a limit on the number of loans that a plan participant may take. So some plans will have a limit of one or two loans. So for a plan sponsor who's considering whether to adopt an amendment to implement this special plan loan opportunity, they may need to take a look at their plan document and see whether any changes will be required in order to facilitate uh, this enhanced uh, loan opportunity. There's also a temporary suspension of loan repayments. So again, for qualifying individuals, uh, new and existing loan repayment due dates between March 27th and December 31st are suspended for one year under the CARES Act. It doesn't modify the maximum five-year amortization, general amortization period for the plan loans, um, but it does provide some relief for repayment while folks may be uh, experiencing some financial difficulties associated with the pandemic. The other notable thing that the CARES Act did was it's waived the required minimum distribution rules for 2020 in defined contribution plans for all participants. Um, so this is, you know, pretty significant. It, uh, you know, helps folks preserve some tax deferred savings and not be maybe required to take distributions at a time when the value of their uh, retirement investment portfolio may be lower than <laughs> what it was certainly several, several months ago. Um, and this is again similar to what um, the IRS gave us as far as some relief in the 2008-2009 period. So with respect to the CARES Act, we also have significant flexibility in implementation. So an employer who wants to take advantage of these provisions can implement them immediately. All of the, these were all sort of effective immediately upon enactment of the CARES Act. And the deadline, notably the deadline for actually adopting the plan amendments to reflect these changes is the last day of the first plan year beginning on or after January 1, 2022. So even though they can be implemented immediately, we do have a significant remedial amendment period for actually changing plan documents to catch up to these changes. And so many of your clients may have already received communications from their record keepers about implementing these changes. Um, in particular, um, I know several of the kind of larger mutual fund companies who have significant plan administration services have been very, um, uh, assertive about reaching out, very proactive, and implementing these changes, you know, kind of sometimes even by default, essentially saying we're, we're going to do this because they anticipated that the demand for these, um, these sort of beneficial and more flexible provisions um, would be welcome. So we have time uh, for the documentation to catch up with the practice. Uh, so that's the CARES Act. Um, Daniel, if we can move on to slide two. Um, now we kind of get into just some things that generally apply even absent this special legislative uh, relief. One is we're getting lots of questions from clients about whether they can reduce or curtail their employer contributions to retirement plans. Um, so they're con considering whether to suspend or eliminate maybe a company match or a profit sharing contribution. 
And, you know, really this depends on plan, the plan design and kind of what sort of plan they have. So for example, one common plan design these days, particularly for um, smaller companies, maybe a safe harbor plan, which requires an annual employer contribution. And the trade-off is that they're then exempt from certain non-discrimination testing requirements that can make plan administration a little easier. Um, part of that trade-off is that safe harbor plans, maybe they're subject to some more stringent requirements as far as notices and um, an inflexibility in operations that maybe more discretionary plans are not subject to. So we'll get to that in a second. Generally, a plan that's not a safe harbor plan will have some more flexibility to implement a change in its employer contribution provisions. So if, for example, an employer contribution, whether it's a match or profit sharing contribution, is purely discretionary, then a plan amendment may not be required. Um, otherwise, there may need to be some minor changes to the plan document. Um, but as we'll talk about in a second, we also have to be mindful of not running afoul of the um, anti, what we call the anti-cutback rules. So for a plan that's not a safe harbor plan, um, then generally speaking, very generally speaking, unless the plan document provides otherwise, a plan sponsor may prospectively change or reduce an employer contribution during the plan year. Um, but in doing so, the plan sponsor needs to be sure that they're not otherwise adversely affecting the benefits that anybody may not have already become entitled to pursuant to this anti-cutback rule I mentioned. So that rule prohibits plan amendments that would reduce accrued benefits. So if a plan document has a provision that says um, nobody's entitled to anything until the last day of the plan year, as long as you're still employed on that day, that plan has significant flexibility to enable the plan sponsor to make changes. But if the plan, as it is commonly, uh, as it commonly occurs, has a provision with that last day of the rule, a year rule requirement, but with exceptions for any participants who die or become disabled or who retire during the year, then that amendment may not be effective under this anti-cutback rule for anybody who's already died, become uh, disabled, or retired. So it's really important that the plan sponsor kind of understand what the conditions are for someone receiving an allocation under the terms of um, even a discretionary benefit uh, formula. For a safe harbor plan, so this is a, a designed-based alternative that satisfies certain non-discrimination rules. In again, the trade-off is that they don't have to do the same sort of non-discrimination testing a plan with a more discretionary formula might have to comply with. Generally, these plans require an annual minimum employer contribution that can either be made in the form of a matching contribution or just an employer non-elective contribution. Um, in general, safe harbor plans, the general rule is that they typically cannot uh, suspend or reduce contributions but they may if a couple of different requirements are satisfied. So either if the employer is operating at an economic loss or if the annual safe harbor notice, which is one of the advanced notice requirements, includes a statement that provides that the safe harbor matching or non-elective contributions may be reduced or suspended during the plan year, then the plan sponsor 
may be able to do that. Um, in order to do that, in addition to satisfying one of those two requirements, the employees have to receive some supplemental notices explaining the changes to the safe harbor contributions and their, their effective date and the procedures for making changes to elective deferrals, essentially to give employees the opportunity to decide whether they want to keep contributing at the same rate um, if they now know that this safe harbor contribution may not be made. And that notice has to be provided no later than 30 days before the effective date of the amendment that changes the safe harbor formula or uh, you know, contribution requirement. And they have to have this reasonable opportunity to change their election. The safe harbor contributions have to be provided until the effective date of the amendment. And most significantly, that means the plan will no longer have safe harbor status for that plan year. And the consequence of that is that the plan then has to undergo regular non-discrimination testing like a plan with a discretionary formula. And um, if the plan doesn't pass uh, that testing, it will have to take whatever, depending on the test that it fails, will have to take appropriate corrective steps to ensure that it is going to be able to pass that testing. So there may be, um, you know, trade-offs, the cost savings associated with uh, maybe ditching the safe harbor contribution formula may ultimately end up being offset by additional employer contributions that have to be made in order to get the plan to pass testing depending on the plan's demographics. And so this is definitely an instance where we strongly encourage plan sponsors to work with their third-party administrators or whoever it is that does their non-discrimination testing to maybe do some modeling before they go down that road and find out what if any changes are going to be required or, or kind of what the real cost will be at the end of the day, because um, it's, a, it's a lot of trouble to go through if the ultimate cost savings will not be there down the road. Um, moving on, we can move to slide three. Um, this is another issue that we're coming up against a lot. Um, and, and it's again, not, not something that's particularly new, but something that maybe a lot of folks haven't had to consider um, up until recently. And that is, we do see a lot of companies that are implementing reductions in force. And those may trigger what we call partial plan terminations. And the consequence of having a partial plan termination is that uh, a plan sponsor will need to fully vest the accounts of participants who are affected by the partial plan termination. What makes this tricky is that you may not always know when you're having a partial plan termination while you're while you're in the middle of, um, you know, maybe a, a successive reductions in force over a long period of time. So, generally speaking, a partial plan termination occurs when there's some material reduction in the number of participants in a retirement plan. Uh, notably, there is no kind of hard and fast definition of what a partial plan termination is. It's generally viewed as occurring when more than 20% of a plan's participants terminate employment, but even below 20%, the IRS will generally apply a facts and circumstances analysis. Um, they don't typically consider what they view as routine turnover, but in determining whether turnover is routine or not, they will look at a number of factors, including uh, the turnover rate in other periods and the extent to which terminated employees were actually replaced. Um, they will take a look at whether new employees are performing the same functions 
or whether the new employees have the same job classification or title or whether they receive comparable compensation. You know, essentially the IRS will be trying to get at whether you just have people leaving and you're replacing them with uh, other employees who have similar skills, they're performing similar functions, they're receiving comparable compensation, or whether it does, you know, really look like you are uh, or your client is getting rid of a significant class um, or category of employee as part of this reduction in force. So if there is a partial plan termination, then affected participants have to become fully vested in all amounts that are credited to their account. Um, of course, uh, 401k salary deferral contributions are always um, fully vested, but for matching contributions or profit sharing contributions that have a vesting schedule, they would have to become fully vested. It's only affected participants. Um, so it's so for folks who are continuing in employment and not impacted by the reduction in force, um, they would not be required to become fully vested. But the important thing to note here is um, that the IRS views affected employees as not only including uh, individuals who are terminated involuntarily by the company, but also folks who may voluntarily quit in anticipation of maybe a future layoff. So if you have employees who sort of see the writing on the wall, um, feel like they, you know, they may be next and they voluntarily terminate, the IRS may look at those folks as being affected participants and taking them into account in, in not only determining whether a partial plan termination has occurred, but also um, whether they should be affected participants who are entitled to full vesting. Um, moving on to slide four. So we're getting some questions uh, from clients as well about plan terminations just in general. So um, depending on the circumstances, a plan sponsor may just wish to cease maintaining a plan at all. This will most likely happen in the context of either kind of a full shutdown of a company or a bankruptcy proceeding, or perhaps a corporate transaction where a company is being acquired by another company. Um, it's, it would be the, I think the more rare occasion if a company just decided that it was going to continue operations, but decide to terminate their plan. Um, but that does happen occasionally. And so the real takeaway here for plan terminations is just that um, there is, even though the termination may be legally technically effective, um, typically by action of the company through a board vote and perhaps providing some notices to the plan trustee or plan participants, there will be some post-termination wind down that's required. So just because the legal action has been taken to terminate a plan doesn't necessarily mean that there's not more work to do. There has to be this liquidation process where the accounts are all settled, um, amounts are actually distributed to individuals, uh, a final form 5500 filing is filed for the plan. Um, as with a partial plan termination, all participants have to be 100% vested in their accounts as of the termination date. And really the take home is there needs to be somebody who's going to be responsible for managing that process. Um, an individual or perhaps a committee of individuals who are going to continue to work with the plan record keeper to uh, distribute accounts, 
um, distribute the required notices informing people of their opportunity to roll their account balances over to an IRA or another tax qualified retirement plan, um, manage the service providers, locate missing participants, which is always, um, always a challenge, um, and just kind of see to the general winding up of the plan. So uh, just because a plan may technically terminate doesn't mean that um, we just turn the lights off and walk away. There has to be some, um, some additional follow-up that happens there. Um, and then uh, slide five, I think my last slide. Um, one thing that we just also want to put on people's radar screens is, you know, there's obviously a significant amount of market volatility. Um, this is proving really challenging for plan investment fiduciaries. Um, unlike, I think a little bit unlike the 2008-2009 period where everything just seemed to be kind of endlessly bleak and in just a downward trajectory, um, this market is is just very strange in that it's uh, just you know up and down and there's so much choppiness in the market. And so we're getting questions from planned fiduciaries about what they can do or what they should be doing in light of that. And you know, really our advice has been um, continue to just apply whatever existing best practices you've been complying with. Um, and, and if you don't have established practices, you know, try to do that as promptly as possible. Um, you know, plan fiduciaries should be reviewing, they should still be reviewing the available menu of plan investments on a regular basis to the extent that a client of yours has a retirement committee or an investment committee in place. Um, be sure that they're aware of not only their general uh, fiduciary duties under ERISA, but also whatever that retirement plan or investment committee uh, charter says they're going to be doing. I mean, one of the worst things you can do under ERISA's rules, which are very procedurally oriented, is to have procedures that you're not complying with. That's something that will um, kind of get you on the DOL's radar screen very quickly. And so if you have established best practices, continue to comply with them. That may include, um, you know, monitoring the investments, putting them on a watch list um, for a company that doesn't have an independent uh, investment fiduciary advisor, you may want to consider uh, retaining one. But um, basically the, the same things that you should ideally be doing all the time are even more important now where uh, the market choppiness and um, potentially um, you know, additional market challenges may just raise additional questions or, or subject fiduciaries who are making these decisions to heightened scrutiny. So um, stick to best practices, keep doing what you're doing. If you don't already have those practices in place, then by all means, think about getting them in, in place and starting to establish some of those best practices um, so that uh, if a plan participant or even worse, a plan participant's uh, plaintiff's attorney <laughs> comes knocking, you'll have um, a good explanation and a good track record and good documentation for how the plan fiduciaries have been making those investment decisions. Um, and so that kind of brings me to the end of my half of the presentation. Um, and I'll turn it over to Patricia. Great, thank you. So, um, waiting for my slides to pop up. 
Well, while we're waiting, so I am going to talk about health and welfare plan guidance and changes that have come up in the past couple of months. And, and they really, I find, are falling into maybe three buckets. There are changes that are meant to help individuals get testing for COVID and treatment for COVID, uh, changes that are meant to help everyone else continue to get their health care, but ideally not by actually leaving their home, so through telehealth, and then also many measures that are meant to compensate uh, the, the fact that there's a disruption of services, a disruption in the economy, um, and to, to kind of give, give some flexibility to both employers and individuals to compensate for those things. So let's go to the first slide, uh, second, next slide. So here's the um, items we're going to talk about today. Um, just some sources of guidance, new coverages, deadline extensions, high deductible health plans and health savings account guidance, cafeteria plan guidance, and finally, if we have time, the Stafford Act. Um, so next slide. And the next slide. So this is just a list of, so you can see how much guidance there's been. This has all been in the past two months. Um, and, and this is just meant to be a resource for, for those out there listening so you can look back and see where to find these things if you need to dig into them a little more, more significantly. But I'm not going to read all these, so next slide, please. All right, so the first thing we're going to talk about are new, new benefits that we're seeing, uh, new benefit requirements. So let's start with the um, Families First Act and the CARES Act. So these laws together require $1 testing for COVID. No co-pays, no deductibles, no prior authorization, and no medical management may be applied. Um, plans and issuers providing this coverage must reimburse the provider using the negotiated rate they had before the emergency, or with the publicized cash price if they did not have a negotiated rate. This applies to pretty much all group health plans and health insurance coverages, grandfathered, non-grandfathered, insured, and self-insured. Um, there's no, no, no plans, get out of this. All right, next slide, please. And here I've, I've listed, and I'm not going to go through this in detail because it, it's, it's pretty, technical and medical. But this is the, the site from the law about what exactly the covered testing items and services are. Uh, it's not unlimited. You can't, you don't have to cover everything. You have to be out in the, in the statute. Next, please. And here's some additional clarification about what items, where the items and services would be provided that would be covered. All right, next slide, please. Also under the CARES Act, the CARES Act covers certain coronavirus-related preventive services. So if you recall in the Affordable Care Act, there is a requirement that certain preventive services must be covered. Uh, done. So again, no cost sharing, no no copay deductibles. There can be some medical management, but it but there's limited orders around that. This 
adds a new service for qualifying coronavirus preventative services. These services include items, services, and vaccinations meant to mitigate COVID-19. So this is more related, uh, you know, vaccinations and prevention. There's some guardrails around what these items are too. They must have an A or B rating by the U.S. Preventive Task Services, uh, Preventive Services Task Force. Uh, the requirement takes effect 15 business days after a recommendation is made. Uh, this does not appear to apply to grandfathered plans in the same manner as the Affordable Care Act's provision would not apply to grandfathered plans. Now, if, if you look at these different uh, ratings requirements uh, that to be met in order for an item to get on this list, to my knowledge, nothing is on the list yet. So again, you know, we've all been news about vaccinations and preventative medications that may be taken. There's certainly a lot of hope and excitement, but as of now, we're still a ways away from, so right now there are no preventive services that need to be covered on, but this is certainly something to watch and, and, and something to be optimistic about. We, everyone wants a vaccine for this. All right, next slide, please. So there's been a, a FAQ was uh, put out by the tri-agencies to provide some additional uh, clarification on some provisions or, or, or clarifications on these CARES Act new requirements. So the first is summaries of benefits and coverage relief. So under the summaries of coverage rules, which have been in effect for some time now, any modification um, two rules uh, must be, sorry, I'm, I'm just, the, the little photos on the side, oh, there we go, I'm, uh, sorry, I'm just having a little technical problem with reading my slides, but I think I'll be okay. Um, so usually under the summaries of benefication, summaries of benefits and coverage modification rules, notice must be given 60 days in advance of any modification. Under the relief, if modifications are made to increase coverage for the diagnosis and or treatment of COVID-19, that 60-day advance notice requirement is waived. It's not waived. Um, the notice must be given as soon as reasonably practic practical, but there's relief if you don't get it out 60 days before. The relief applies to changes made during the emergency period. There's also some EAP guidance that came out. An employee assistance plan that otherwise qualifies as a benefit will not, not lose that status if it offers benefits for diagnosis and testing of COVID-19. On-site clinic guidance was provided as well. An on-site clinic will not lose accepted benefit status for benefits for diagnosis, testing of COVID-19, and then the, the FAQs clarify that states may impose requirements on health insurance issuers above and beyond the CARES Act. Uh, next slide, please. So on the issue of state law, and we're not going to get into this in too much detail, but the state of Massachusetts has imposed some requirements on insurance carriers in the state of Massachusetts. 
So let's go to, I don't want to go over all these points, but I wanted to make them available to the attendees. So let's go to the next slide and then to the next. What I want to highlight is the third bullet on this slide. So issuers in Massachusetts have to, without cost sharing, medically necessary treatment delivered by telehealth related to COVID-19 at in-network providers. This is above and beyond the CARES Act. Uh, the CARES Act does not require any dollar one treatment for COVID-19 um, issues, but this does if it's delivered by telehealth at in-network providers. So that is uh, a step above what CARES requires and something to keep in mind. Also to keep in mind though, this is a mandate on issuers, not on self-insured health plans. So if you have a self-insured plan, you can follow this if you, and you may want to, but again, mandate only issuers. All right, next please. Deadline relief. Uh, next slide. So there have been two big pieces of guidance issuing relief for deadlines during the outbreak period. Uh, by the labor, the IRS, and the Treasury. So the outbreak period is defined as the period beginning on March 1, 2020, and 60 days after the end of the COVID-19 national emergency. So it's still going. Once there's an announcement that the emergency is over, whenever that will be, then there's 60 more days before this outbreak period ends. And what's the relief? group health plans, disability, and other employee welfare benefit plans, and, and actually pension plans as well, though this doesn't, you know, most of these don't apply to pension plans because they're related to COBRA. Uh, those plans must disregard the outbreak period in determining the following periods and dates. So this notice provides relief mostly to individuals. Um, the, first, the first deadline that's disregarded is the 30-day or 60-day for CHIPRA time period to request special enrollment under HIPAA. So if you have a, a status change, you have a new child, you get married, etc., cetera, uh, often plans can impose a 30-day window for you to enroll that new, that new dependent. Uh, now it's extended until 60 days after the outbreak period. Uh, some COBRA relief, the 60-day election period, the initial 45-day period and 30-day grace period for premium payments, and the 60-day period to notify the plan administrator of a qualifying event, second qualifying event, so this is like a divorce, for example, or determination of disability. All those um, are disregarded during the outbreak period. Next slide, please. Uh, claims requirements, and again, these are claims requirements on individuals. The time period for claimant to file a benefit claim under the plan's claim procedure. The period to file an appeal of an adverse benefit determination, usually 180 days. And the time period to request external review or perfect an external review. Again, all those disregarded during the outbreak period. And then finally, there's, there's one piece of relief in this notice for, for employers. Um, with respect to the to group health plans and their sponsors and traders, the outbreak period shall be disregarded when determining the date for providing COBRA election notices. So again, COBRA election notices usually have to go out within 60 days of the qualifying event. That 60-day period is disregarded as well. That said, uh, we're still advising employers to try to meet that 60-day requirement if they can. Next slide, please. 
So there was another piece of guidance, EBSID Disaster Relief 2020-01, which is relief to benefit plans and fiduciaries. So an employee benefit plan and the fiduciary will not be in violation of ERISA for a failure to timely furnish a notice disclosure that must be furnished during the outbreak period. The plan and fiduciary must good faith to furnish the notice <clears throat> disclosure document as soon as administratively practical under the circumstances. So you don't get a free pass, but you get good faith compliance. Good faith acts include the use of electronic alternative means of communicating with plan participants and beneficiaries. So again, maybe you don't exactly meet the, um, the deadline or the, the rules, but you use some other means that would fall into the good faith bucket. Extension applies to the furnishing of notices, disclosures, and other documents required by provisions of Title I of ERISA other than the notices eligible for the relief that we discussed earlier. Notices include summary plan descriptions, material modifications, requests for plan documents, and certain claims communications. So, so again, this is, this is good relief for um, fiduciaries, employers, and plans who may be having trouble pulling together um, various ERISA documents that should be going out sooner than they are slide please. All right, uh, and finally there is some very, very limited, I wouldn't get too excited about this one, but I thought it was worth mentioning, 5500 and M1 limited filing extensions. The M1 files for, for MUAs. Uh, so for 5500 and M1 filings otherwise due from April 2020 through July 14th, 2020, the due date is postponed to July 15th to 2020. So again, a, a limited number of, of plans who have filings due during this short period get a limited extension. But, but again, this doesn't apply to all 5500s and M1s. It, it's really a limited bucket of, of plans that can take advantage of this. Next slide, please. All right, high deductible health plans and health savings account guidance. Next slide, please. So as many of the attendees know, and I, I know our other lists know, uh, in order to participate, first of all, a health savings account is great. It, it's a great triple tax benefit vehicle. You don't pay taxes on the money going in, you don't pay taxes on the earnings, and then when the money comes out, you don't pay taxes on it so long as you're using it for medical expenses. So, but there's a lot of um, guardrails around participating in health savings accounts. In particular, in order to participate in a health savings account, an individual must be participating in a high deductible health plan and no other health plan. A lot of rules and, and guidance and regulation about what you can offer as well as a high deductible health plan and not violate this rule. A high deductible health plan is generally a plan with deductibles of at least $1,400 for single coverage, $2,800 for family coverage. Next slide, please. Oh, there's been some relief about what can be provided before the deductible and not ruin the high deductible health plan treatment. So the first piece, 
IRS Notice 2020-15 says that a plan will not fail to be a high deductible health plan merely because the plan provides medical care services and items purchased related to testing for and treatment of COVID prior to the satisfaction of the minimum deductible. This doesn't mean that plans necessarily have to provide this benefit other than pursuant to the CARES Act and state law if that applies. Uh, but if they do, it, it can be offered under a high deductible health plan pre-deductible. And the individual will still be eligible for a health savings account. In addition, IRS Notice 2020-29 clarified that any items or services required under the Families First Act and the CARES Act are considered testing and treatment for COVID-19. So again, can be, can be provided prior to the deductible being met. And the relief applies to reimbursements after January 1, 2020. So if a plan was providing these services earlier in the year, those can still fall under this relief. Next slide, please. And then, and then there's some telehealth relief. So there's, there's always been this question of whether telehealth can be provided prior to the meeting of a deductible. And the, the general thinking has been only if another exception has met. But the CARES Act Section 3701 says that telehealth and other remote care services may be provided under a high deductible health plan without a deductible or below the minimum deductible. Telehealth and other remote care services received outside of a high deductible health plan can be disregarded in determining whether an individual has coverage other than a high deductible health plan, and the relief is not limited to COVID-19 services. So this is, this is pretty big. So any telehealth services provided under the plan can be provided prior to the deductible being met, whether related to COVID-19. Um, telehealth is definitely having a moment. Um, so again, a plan doesn't necessarily have to provide telehealth services unless required under the CARES Act or state law. But if it does, it can be pre-deductible and that high deductible health plan will still be HSA compatible. But the relief is, is limited, at least for now. Provisions apply to services provided on or after January 1, 2020 with respect to plan years beginning on or before December 31, 2021. So unless it's extended, it will sunset in a year and a half. All right, next slide, please. And then the CARES Act also gave us some new reimbursable, reimbursable medical expenses. Over-the-counter medications can now be reimbursed under a health savings account or health flexible spending account without a prescription. Uh, that's, that's a big change. And then reimbursements for menstrual care products are now allowed as well. These are effective for expenses after December 31, 2019. Next slide, please. All right, so now we're going to talk about some changes relating to cafeteria plans, health flexible spending accounts, and dependent care assistant programs. Next slide, please. So cafeteria plan election changes generally. Uh, benefit elections must be made prior to the start of a plan year and are irrevocable for the plan year. Uh, a plan may, but is not required to allow participants to revoke an election and make a new election, certain conditions that the IRS has set out in regulations. So the general rule is you make your elections at the beginning of the year, those stay for the entire year, uh, unless you have one of these permitted election change events. 
Next slide, please. IRS Notice 2020-29 makes some changes and provides relief with the uh, thought that because of COVID-19, some folks might want or need to change their elections. Employers may, but don't have to amend their plans to allow eligible individuals to make new elections for employer-sponsored health coverage. So if you didn't have coverage, you can elect it now. If you had coverage under an employer plan, but you want to choose a different employer option, you can make that change. Have employer health coverage, but you want to revoke your election, maybe go on to a spouse's plan, you can do that, but you have to attest that you will immediately enroll in the other health coverage. You can make a new election, revoke an election, or change an election under a health flexible account plan or a dependent care assistance program as well. Again, employers do not have to provide these uh, changes, but they can. Next slide, please. Few other rules around these changes. The changes must be prospective. An employer is not required to provide unlimited election changes. So for example, if they wanna say, look, we'll add these change options, but you can only make one change. You can't change, change back and change back and change back uh, or keep increasing your flexible spending account increments. You can also put some time guardrails around it if you like. Uh, the relief may be applied retroactively to periods in 2020 prior to the issuance of notice 2029. And then there's a, a pretty long remedial amendment period for this as well. The plan must be amended for the 2020 plan year by 1231-2021. Uh, but if you don't make your amendment right away, employers should in any event inform eligible employees of the changes. It's kind of pointless if the employees don't know about it. All right, next slide, please. All right. So uh, uh, flexible spending account and dependent care account grace periods and carryovers. So these are the general rules. Generally amounts elected for a plan year must be used by the end of the plan year. There are a couple exceptions. A plan may allow for unused amounts to be used during the next plan year during a grace period of up to two and a half months. And health flexible spending accounts may allow a carryover of up to $550 or a grace period, but not both. So next slide, please. So first, the grace period relief applies to plans with a plan period ending in 2020. Employer may amend the plan to permit employees to use unused amounts remaining as of the end of the plan year or grace period ending in 2020 to pay expenses through 12-31-20. So this, is, this relief is really with the mind that people may have put money aside into their accounts to maybe have a service during the beginning portion of 2020 could not have that service because only, um, you know, emergency services were being performed by their doctor, their doctor closed their office, except for telehealth, etc. So this, this allows employers to extend the time that some of that money can be used. Uh, for health flexible spending accounts, keep in mind that the extended period is not HSA compatible unless it's a limited purpose FSA. Again, plans must be amended for the 2020 plan year by 1231-21, but employers should let employees know. Next slide, please. Uh, FSA carryovers. So again, um, a plan can allow a carryover of up to $550 a year. It was 500, it's now been increased to 550. Next slide, please. Not much more to say about that really. 
And then the new reimbursable medical expenses, we already talked about these same slide right here as we talked about for the health savings accounts, over-the-counter medica medications can be reimbursed without a prescription and menstrual care products can be reimbursed as well. Next slide, please. And then finally, just a few words on the Stafford Act. Uh, next slide. So the Stafford Act was, was passed after 9-11 and if there's a national emergency, what happens is Internal Revenue Code Section 139, which is usually dormant, springs into action. And under Section 139, qualified disaster relief payments may be made to an employee uh, without any tax consequences. The, those payments can be excluded from an employee's taxable income. Qualified disaster relief payments include amounts paid to or for the benefit of an individual to reimburse or pay necessary personal family, living or funeral expenses incurred as a result of a qualified disaster. Uh, the expense can't be compensated by another source and, and really there's no substantiation requirement so long as the expenses are reasonable. So this is, um, this is a, a pretty um, broad, gives employers a pretty broad option to give tax-free money to their employees for to, to help with stuff, to help with um, personal family living expenses. Uh, it's come up in, in my practice a lot in the context of, of dependent care expenses. Can we give our employees some money to help pay for um, dependent care coverage since the schools are all canceled? And would that be taxable? And, and the answer in my view is that those payments would fall under this rule uh, and can be provided tax-free. I, I do still require employers to get some substantiation and, and do some record keeping here because you never know uh, when you could be, could be audited and questioned. But this is, um, this is a pretty, um, pretty sweeping piece of relief and just something to keep in mind. And that is that is it for for mine. I think we have a few minutes left for questions. Great, thank you so much, Patricia and Natasha. That was very helpful and informative. Uh, we do have a couple of questions, so I will start tossing them at you gently. Um, I think the first one is for you, Natasha, and you had described some of the provisions of the CARES Act and um, what those might mean for employers and their employees. Um, but I think, you know, just to underscore and help people understand, are those changes mandatory or discretionary? So the suspension of the required minimum distributions for 2020 is not discretionary, but the changes that have been introduced by, um, to the loan provisions and the hardship distributions are discretionary, as are the, the general loan and hardship provisions. Um, so as I said, you know, uh, an employer who may not already be utilizing one of the regular rules may want to sort of dip their toe in the water uh, just by starting down that road, um, but they're certainly not required to, although as I noted, many record keepers are, uh, I think, being fairly assertive about um, implementing those changes unless uh, a plan sponsor has decided to opt out within some period of time. Great, thank you. Um, we also have a question, Patricia, regarding COBRA. Um, and um, so we're wondering whether there has been any word informally or formally about whether Congress is talking about extending the COBRA um, 
continuation period? Yeah, I, I've gotten that question a, a bunch, and I, I have not heard anything about a, a, a COBRA extension beyond 18 months. Uh, it, I've also gotten some questions about whether the COBRA subsidy might be, um, you know, might make a comeback. And, and, and again, I, I haven't heard about that either. I think the reason is back when the COBRA subsidy happened, that the exchanges weren't operating yet. And I, I, I kind of feel like if there's going to be more relief, that it's likely, more likely to come in the form of a bigger exchange subsidy or, or something along those lines rather than, um, rather than COBRA related relief. But, but, but I don't have a crystal ball on, <laughs> on what Congress might do. So I, I suppose anything could happen. And, and this, this, this downturn is, is could go on for a while and more relief will be needed and everything's on the table. Great. Thank you. Just shifting back to some of the retirement plan rules, Natasha, um, I know that you uh, spent some time discussing the CARES Act updates, but we're wondering whether those um, uh, CARES Act provisions replace the normal rules regarding loans and hardship distributions from retirement plans. Yeah, so they don't. Um, so, the, you know, the, I mean, um, the regular rules still apply, you know, in, in order to take advantage of some of the CARES Act um, loan and hardship distribution provisions. One does have to be a qualified individual. So um, for someone who doesn't meet that, criteria. Um, the regular rules still apply to the extent that the plan already has them. Um, so those, those rules are still in effect. Great. Thank you. Um, I guess, uh, Patricia, going back to the COBRA issue, um, I'm sure uh, there's um, a lot of people wondering, since you no longer have to comply with the strict de statutory deadlines for electing and providing COBRA notices, what are you telling people regarding how they should handle their COBRA notices? Right, there's, there's no good answer to that. I keep checking the, the DOL's website and hoping they, they update the notices and, and drop in some language that we can recommend. Uh, that, that hasn't happened yet. There was a COBRA notice update, but it, it, was, it, it added language um, addressing some Medicare issues, which, which is important, but not, um, not related to these new deadlines. So I think em employers could approach it in a couple of different ways. Um, even if you look at the 60-day requirement, that's that's still a long time timeline. So they could take a wait-and-see approach maybe for a week or two to see if new notices do come out. Uh, if they don't like that approach for, for whatever reason, they could also consider adding a, a notice to the, to the front of their current COBRA notice that refers to the uh, various deadline uh, relief extensions um, and just, just a one page or a couple of lines, not really saying too much, but adding that to the top of their, their usual notice. Great, thank you. Um, we are at 11. Um, I have two more quick questions I could ask you. Do we wanna move forward with those or wrap Wrap them up. I think, do the panelists have any preference? I think we can take a couple more quick questions. That's Great. fine. Um, Natasha, for you on, in the retirement plan context, um, are there any other cost cutting or cash conservation um, uh, measures that your clients are considering or that you're recommending for them? Yeah, so I would say there, there are a couple of things. I mean, we, we do have a number of um, companies who have 
furloughed employees um, as and in working with our labor and employment colleagues, you know, the distinction is that a, a furloughed employee generally is treated as continuing to have an active employment relationship with the company, even though they may not be um, working on site and being paid, but there is this concept that the, the employment relationship continues intact, as opposed to an employee who may be laid off where there actually has been a termination or a separation from service. Um, so we've seen companies um, furloughing employees on what they, they certainly hope to be a temporary basis. That, you know, that creates some interesting um, benefits issues, both on the health and welfare side and on the retirement side, because of course those folks are no longer um, receiving compensation. So, you know, they may not be able to make salary deferral contributions because they don't have current um, income. It may call into question whether they're still eligible to participate in the company's health and welfare plans because many, uh, for example, insurance contracts will require that somebody be actively working a certain minimum uh, number of hours per week. And so we've counseled employers to be sure that they're having conversations with their insurance providers so that they're not um, misrepresenting an employee's status uh, in a manner that's contradictory to what their insurance policies provide. Um, so we've certainly seen furlough used as a, as a cost-cutting measure on, again, what we hope will be a temporary basis. The other thing we've gotten a few questions on is um, companies who are interested in exploring the possibility of making employer contributions in the form of company stock rather than cash. Um, again, this, uh, as with, you know, defined benefit plans, that's a topic that could have its own whole other uh, hour-long presentation because the use of company stock, whether it's a private company or a public company in a qualified retirement plan has um, lots of primarily fiduciary implications, but also just um, general securities law compliance issues and also some logistical issues. So um, that's something we've had some conversations about. I wouldn't say that we're seeing a big uptake on that front, but um, but that's something that we we are getting some questions about as well, just from a from a cash conservation perspective. Great, thank you. And I think our last question is for you, Patricia. And I think just um, generally speaking, um, in the health and welfare plan context, or as we deal with cafeteria plan um, arrangements. What is the most frequent question that clients have been asking you over the past couple months as we've been dealing with the pandemic and they're trying, trying to um, deal with this on a benefit plan arrangement basis? Hmm. So I, you know, I, I think I would have to say the, the questions I'm getting the most are two that Natasha already highlighted as questions she's getting the most. And the, the first one is, you know, we're furloughing employees. What does that mean for their, their health insurance and, and their, their benefits? And, and again, just trying to, giving the, giving the same answer Natasha did, that employees may not technically be eligible. You need to contact your insurer, your stop loss carrier to make sure they're going to be covered. Or you can consider um, a, a co considered to be a COBRA event and offer COBRA and maybe subsidize COBRA and, and helping them understand what that means as well. Um, the, other, the other biggest question is, is really on terminating the 401k match um, over and over again. Even, even companies, even clients that aren't necessarily in distress are considering it. 
as, as kind of a preventive measure, just, just in case, let's um, preserve this cash and make sure we, we can compensate our employees with, with their salaries. Um, and then we can always reinstate the match later on, but, but let's, let's just be careful here. So I, 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 you know, I think I'm getting this a lot of the same, the same as Natasha on, on, on those types of questions. Great. Thank you so much for taking the time to deliver this presentation this morning. We really appreciate it. I believe that we will be circulating slides or the BBA will be doing so. Um, and, you know, everyone stay safe and healthy and uh, um, we look forward to getting together in the future. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you all.